0: Burn, the academic analysis of blockchain and other technologies in the decentralised digital economy. I'm your host, Kelsey Nabin, and we are tuning in remotely again from lockdown from the RMIT University Blockchain Innovation Hub to bring you guests and tests frontier ideas. Today, we're talking to Dr. Alexia Maddox from Deakin University uh, and Swinburne University on dark markets and blockchain. Alexia, welcome.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Kelsey. It's great to be here
0: great to have you on. So first of all, it might be helpful for you to explain what are dark markets and how on earth did you end up studying them?
1: Definitely. Uh, so I ended up studying dark markets, dark net markets or crypto markets uh, because of my collaboration with Monica Barrett. And Monica is a specialist in um, drug policy, as well as media and um, into the internet and how sort of uh, people who use drugs access them and each other through the internet. So that was her founding um, background. And she was one of the first scholars to really signpost the emergence of crypto markets in the dark web. And uh, at the time when she was launching the research into that, she was also Uh, pregnant and had to go on maternity leave so she cast around in her mind for someone who might wish to do the research with her the ethnographic work for understanding how people who use drugs were accessing crypto markets and what impact that had on their drug use and uh, happily (laughs) she she thought of me and so I'm a, a digital sociologist or a sociologist of technology And I specialise in how communities use uh, online spaces to connect with each other. So it's a very basic premise for me, but community studies are in my wheelhouse, as well as how uh, people and technology kind of imbricate imbricate, um, or come together and and what that creates for us, uh, both in terms of collective practices and also our, our visions of the future. So that uh, that background in community studies really kind of made her think of me and happily I was really able to do it. Um, so that's kind of how it came about was, was um, through my work with Monica and, and her knowledge of my ability to engage with communities, particularly in online spaces.
0: Awesome. And you've done some really interesting work in this space, not only in your findings through the research process, but also around Uh, methods and methodology, which we can uh, dive into. A quick question, when you mention crypto markets, are you talking about cryptography or cryptocurrency or
1: blockchain? How do you delineate there? So crypto markets is a term that was defined by James Martin, and he's a criminologist. And really, he was talking about how uh, encryption technologies are being used in um, the dark web, which is, for example, Tor, um, the Tor browser, as to, to create these secure marketplaces that allowed for an eBay of drugs. <laughs> so essentially, uh, crypto markets are using cryptography and other forms of um, privacy technologies to allow anonymous users and publishers to engage in these environments. And uh, crypto markets or darknet markets are essentially a platform like eBay or Amazon, uh, where people can um, buy and sell from each other, so it's in theory a peer-to-peer technology that's operating through anonymous um, interfaces and practices. So within crypto markets, anonymity is is key and king, and uh, people use different forms of, of privacy technologies for types of operational security. So the 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 primary um, Incentive, of course, is is that people would like to access drugs, whatever type of drug um, they choose. And some of those drugs are uh, illegal in some countries or not not accessible other than via script. Um, But it's quite sort of different. So these markets operate to a global consumer audience. And that means that they're operating across multiple jurisdictions, where sometimes, like a Bible or tobacco, might be illegal in one country, but um, in another. It's not, and so it opens up that ability for people to to access uh, what they're after. So I would call that a high choice environment, but uh, the premise, of course, is that these markets are operating beyond state regulation, beyond the regulation uh, and reach if in theory <laughs> of of nation states. so it's it's quite an interesting environment and a, a, a really fascinating, I guess cultural construct and experiment. Um, that that these crypto markets represent. And so, you know, I don't sit in, in judgment about practices that people do. And um, really, Monica comes from a harm reduction angle in, in terms of drugs, drug use and drug choice. So we're not really out there to, to say these things are bad. <laughs> we're just out there to say, actually, this is what people are doing. Uh, these are the forms of technologies that ma- is making it possible. And what does that mean for us? So there's, there's a lot of big questions that come out of these kinds of frontier spaces uh, where people are experimenting with new forms of technology uh, to, to create affordances for themselves.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting. And that's the nice thing about ethnography, as you say, it's observational, so it's not so much about Judging behavior, but about observing practices and surfacing those findings. And so, I'm fascinated to know what were some of the things that you found, and even what were some of the surprises in what you found.
1: I think there is there's just so many um, so many learnings, and and uh, you know when you go through an ethnographic process, it's it's also about what you learn as a human being as much as what you learn as a researcher. So. You do all the prep and for, for this kind of research, we learnt a lot about privacy technologies, how anonymity was actually constructed both socially and technically in these environments and what the sort of foundational cultures were that gave rise to them and how they were transforming through through user adoption. So that really, that, that bit we could read about. <laughs> and we could see, of course, that there was a certain level of, of insight and understanding that we had. Uh, based upon the published literature, but also what we were seeing within these spaces was was novel, and was really going to prompt us to to build our insights and our understandings and our level of of compassion, and of course the the value for what it is that people were there for and and why they cared. Um, so that's you know that ethnographic lens is really about how does the researcher understand the point of view of Uh, The population that they're researching, and how do they translate that so that it is meaningful for other audiences uh, and stakeholders around, around that particular community? So, that is like a core precept of ethnographic practice. And of course, as a researcher goes into it, you are going to transform without doubt. You may not become like your population, but you will certainly have a different kind of insight because of the process. So, there's there's that sort of principle and you always have to understand, well, what's your, what's your position towards this community? How are you going to relate and why would they want to relate to you? So that kind of interface is, uh, between yourself and the population is always really crucial. It's a positionality for the researcher to to understand and to have a value proposition for why they should even talk to you in the first place. So for me, that, that process was very important to go through. And uh, it's, it's really, particularly from the frame of harm reduction, uh, it's really about understanding that people get pleasure in so many different ways. And I'm not there to judge how people choose to do that. And of course, that is like a fundamental openness that is important when you're moving into a community of, of uh, people who use drugs for different reasons. And uh, so you've really got to have that initial framing. And when I was presenting on this research um, early in the piece, I would often get the, the reaction from other scholars going, Ooh, oh! I wouldn't ever go there. Oh, that's terrible. I don't really want to know about this. This is that's that's so confronting. How how did you do that research? That's no, <laughs> and and so there was a lot of rejection um, of even uh, my openness towards uh, talking to perhaps a marginalised or fringe community that was doing things like taking drugs and and being active in the dark web. Ooh you know (laughs) so of course familiarity is is really a good first step but it's also about understanding where your values overlap or have some kind of openness towards those of of the community that you want to work with and and how you understand what they do and so for me that really came to uh, a, a sort of like a point where I I really value how people use emerging technologies to create social change and forms of transformation. We all desire that, right? We all understand that there are some intractable issues in our current um, world and that cause lots of different forms of social inequality, poverty and, and hardship and suffering. And so we as a collective, we actually need to find collective solutions to be able to move through those inequalities and structural constraints. And so it's not to me to judge people who also want to do that too. And so what we really felt was that, uh, that where our overlap was, is that we understood the problems we were all facing and we had different tools and techniques and, and ways of understanding what those problems were and how they could be addressed. And so for me, that's really where the openness was, is that desire for social good. And of course, it's not represented across the whole terrain of what happens in the dark net, and nor is it represented across the whole terrain of what happens in the clear web or in our social networks. It's very diverse. So that really became that transitional opening point is, is I would go into places where those values resonated. And I guess that's sort of that then the way that I transformed is how those conversations then played out, right? So once you, you open a conversation like that, uh, that I was there to say, you know, how do you use drugs? How, how did you encounter the crypto, net, um, crypto markets? What, what did you think when you were in that space? And uh, how did it impact your drug use trajectory? So, of course, I use different kinds of um, ways of framing those questions depending on the person's experience, but that was the fundamental um, question set that we were there to discuss. But, of course, around that is a whole um, plethora of, of reasons that people are participating in those spaces that are not just about let's get a quick fix and access a meth, you know. So, <laughs> um, you know, the, the conversations were much deeper and much more exciting and much more creative than just those simple um, perceptions that you can bring into a space like that. Uh, there's
0: such, yes, yeah, such interesting uh, methodological reflections and how I actually first came across your work was that um, article in the Journal of Digital Social Research, which I'll put a link to in the show notes, Um, which reflects on some of your experiences and despite what I'm sensing is kind of a a degree of sort of mutual respect for the community that you were researching in, it was not always positive experiences or I guess like a welcome, uh, a warm welcome for you uh, in being present in those forums or um,
1: spaces as well. Absolutely. It's it's just like when you move into any community, there is not a – a single talking point, shall we say, as to how they might regard you. And so crypto markets, of course, are, are also attractive to some people because they support the trade of illicit drugs and, and other illicit goods. So that then, of course, has this um, this association between what we're doing is illegal, therefore anyone who's not us is, is likely to... Um, think poorly of us and perhaps represent forms of law enforcement to judge us and so you've really got that initially in those early days around crypto markets you really had that kind of um, giving the finger to the man kind of um, sentiment that uh, was really about the the underdog the resisting of um, government regulation of people's personal sovereignty and choice and uh, fighting for this space so initially it was really a them and us kind of mentality. And as a researcher, you have to understand how you sit in relation to that them and us uh, sort of ethos. So, for example, as a researcher, I am, um, you know, an official professional position and I could be associated easily with alignments with law enforcement and with the government. So of course that that is um, a very easy box to put me in and I appreciate that and don't judge people for doing that. Um, so there's a way that we, we all find a different way through this system of uh, whatever we would call living in the world. And yes, I, I've definitely worked in the space where the production of knowledge is, is about using rigorous, well-researched, evidence-based knowledge to advance how I understand and engage with the world and then reflect that back. So my ability to work from professional positions and and talk with the government, talk with kind of, um, you know, uh, the higher levels of, of policing and all of that around criminology, around drug policy, that's what Monica does, for example, as a part of her work. So it's really just about representation both how you look to someone else in the community and how they might easily put you in a particular category of the other at which point then uh, being female being a professional academic and uh, coming in there with these outside questions to talk about your drug use is totally the first step to being told to fuck off so to speak you know. (laughs) So if you don't understand that that's the nature of um, the type of community that you're working with, then it could come as a real shock, of course, that you are rejected, that um, you're not well received in the community, and that you are actually attacked for being present in these spaces. So for us, that's not shocking, but it definitely wasn't fun. And, and definitely as a part of the research, uh, you know, being in that space, uh, one of the, the ways that I framed it in one of the papers is just like being a female in that space. It's like being a goat on a rope. You know, you're there, you can't leave. And, of course, you're going to attract people's attention and it may not always be good. So, <laughs> so definitely that's, that's just a part of understanding um, your position towards this community and what their fears are as well as their real fields, of course.
0: That's, um, yeah, very insightful reflections on your Sorry about the, still... uh, the swearing. <laughs> <laughs> we can edit that later. Maybe we'll see. I'll ask the policy. Um, so I'm interested in seeing how these communities are relevant to blockchain because from some of the things you'd, you've said, it would seem that it confirms kind of every bias or fear against. Um, privacy-preserving technology or, or blockchains, which is kind of, you know, uh, you mentioned an in theory, um, peer-to-peer technology, which is in theory beyond the reach of the state. And I guess a lot of the outside perspectives of blockchain is just that it's, you know, it's used by bad people to do bad things or it is used for things that are um, against the, the, um, the law.
1: Yes, so that's, that's definitely uh, some of the early perceptions around these types of technologies. Now, these technologies are not inherently bad, right? So technologies are just uh, what they can potentially be used for. And technologies, for example, that seek to support our privacy is not bad in a world of of platform capitalism where our data and our identities are sold and we are targeted and nudged and manipulated by these environments. So, you know, the sense of what agency can be in these environments uh, where you've got a lot of monitoring and surveillance and manipulation as well as this sense of what is agency and choice for you and to what level do you actually have any control of your personal privacy and data? So these technologies are, you know, experiments in, in, in intractable problems that we have in these systems where do I really want to sell my data to, uh, to X, Y and Z just for free and easy access to their platform? Do I really have a choice? So a lot of the times, these technologies are bringing in choice-based approaches to an environment that is not your friend. You know, so surveillance is, um, you know, it's people are quite happy to sell their to to give away their personal data for ease of access to platforms and social media, for example, in and and understanding that you know. That's they'll be monitored and surveilled through all of that and they think I've got nothing to hide, therefore it's okay. Actually, it's not okay and while you may not have anything really to hide, you may come up against a box that basically disadvantages you without your even being aware of it. So it's that level of awareness and that level of um, fairness that is not necessarily prevalent in these environments. It's kind of stacked up against the individual person. And I do think that that's why a lot of these technologies have come forward as experiments to address that fundamental issue of our current, you know, digital economy, essentially.
0: Yeah, it's a really interesting take on perhaps the importance of these technologies. Uh, why do you think they're, in theory, peer-to-peer?
1: Well, because there's always something mediating, right? So the te- in this instance, uh, these technologies initially came from this sense of removing the need to trust a third party and that technology would then become the, the neutral, trustworthy system through which to engage with each other. So, for example, blockchain allows for uh, smart contracts. It also supports things like cryptocurrencies, which have been framed as peer to peer money, where I send you money via the the um and it gets put in the ledger, and that money goes to you. You know, so there's no one taking a cut in the middle. So that whole mediation process is essentially how our current capitalist market economy works, <laughs> is, is that there's always someone who's trying to control a transaction and cream off some form of power, uh, whether that's in terms of value or opportunity by mediating um, exchanges. So that, that's sort of like, a, it, it's really sitting at, right at the heart of how value exchange occurs within uh, information, uh, within currency, within uh, contracts. And, you know, so there is real, it's, there's, there's a real traction for it to be able to work that way. But, of course, it's still, the technology is still uh, mediating that process and it brings with it its own constraints on how a transaction occurs. For example, sort of reversibility and uh, regulation <laughs> um, and uh, its ability to, to be robust in the face of, of hacks and scams and malicious action. And then the recourse that people can have when they become subject to that through those processes. So all of these things kind of populate that uh, code as law um, type of technology when it's not law, it's code and it's built by people and used by people. And so I know that you have done work around the the notion of trust (laughs) in the blockchain. So I'm definitely, you know, preaching to the very educated on this. Um, But, of course, uh, trust and uh, the removal of the fallible human um, or the sort of the human who's trying to be opportunistic within the middle of someone else's transaction is almost um, an illusion uh, that these technologies put forward.
0: Yeah, that's such an interesting observation and um, I'm really glad that you mentioned recourse as well because um, I've been doing some thinking around the ethics of, of blockchain systems as as that includes those, those privacy principles as well as that kind of um, the responsibility and the accountability and the recourse that legal instruments would provide in other kinds of systems. Did you find that the dark markets that you studied were beyond... Uh, recourse or beyond the law
1: or very much still bound by it they were very much bound by uh, perceptions of of uh, the sovereign self and uh, what is right and how we can be with each other so so, you know, while there's no technical recourse, there was definitely social recourse and there was definitely recourse towards the moderators uh, and, of, and sort of um, the forms of nodal governance within these spaces. So it's not a place without recourse or justice, so to speak, but how those are enacted is quite different to, for example, the use of a legal system that sits within a national framework. So within, for example, crypto markets, they've been described as um, spaces of nodal governance, like a pirate ship, you know, or like the sort of concept around um, seasteading and exit politics where in one space you're, you're bound by the, um, the etiquette norms and uh, defined um, uh, value statements or principles of that space. And so the only recourse you have is if uh, one of those principles has been uh, contravened and then the mechanisms within the site and the people within the site will enact forms of justice norm- and normative control. So it's not like these spaces are lawless. They are totally full of regulation. It just doesn't work within the national system um, of, of legal regulation and political regulation.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting around how the norms govern the communities. And I know I've had experiences even recently, which is somewhat embarrassing to admit where it's late at night and you're like <laughs> trying to make your first NFT to know how it works. And then, you know, you copy paste the wrong address and send, like I sent, um, you know, the fees to mint the NFT to the wrong place. <laughs> and I was like, oh, no, like it's gone, you know, the peak of the market gone. and that that research funding, gone. Um, but then, you know, you reach out to a project that has absolutely no need except for reputation to ever refund you that money. And I was, lo and behold, very... Um, pleasantly surprised when they they sent that back which meant I could you know put it towards minting my my little NFT um so it is really interesting like you say that people have a sense of a sovereign self or a sense of kind of um uh regulation amongst those networks
1: yeah definitely and that's that's a form of uh socially enacted justice right so there's sort of these uh And that that principle of decentralised justice and um, the social good is is very embedded in these environments. And, uh, you know, by and large, that is the value field of of these environments. So if you do send a payment to the wrong person, um, in principle, you can just ask them and say, whoops, did that wrong. Could you send it back? And then that's the idea of personal responsibility and working within your own value field that you will. So it almost works on the assumption that people do share these values of justice and respect and that they will enact it and they don't need some nanny state to come in and make them do so. So, of course, it just becomes problematic when someone acts against that set of principles. And that's when the sort of the regulation around um, community hazing and reputation damage really becomes the tool through which um, someone is brought into line with that sense of um, responsibility for the self.
0: Yeah, fascinating. Do you think there is a place for kind of external intervention in those cases or is it... You get what you deserve or or what kind of um, things did you
1: observe there? There's a place for community intervention. And there's a place for um, higher level regulation. And um, I don't necessarily agree that the social will provide in all instances for all people. And so this sense of uh, justice and inclusion and uh, the, the ways that we can support each other through diversity and tolerance, they do need some form of higher-level regulation because there are large factions which would work against that. And not everyone shares that same value within a single system. So I do, I do sort of see the role of higher-level uh, governance, regulation and responsibility, but I don't think that it needs to be heavy-handed based on the idea that everyone is a bad actor and will behave poorly. And I think that that's where the pushback from, for example, environments like these crypto markets really shows a critical lens on to how much of a nanny state and how disempowered um, people can become in a system that sort of tries to tell them exactly who they are, how to behave and what they can have. Yeah, it's interesting
0: that you mentioned um exit before as well and you know if if you don't like the rules of your pirate ship you can go to another
1: (laughs) yeah that's not really a choice though right so that's the problem with that form of politics and um is that it's not a choice if you how can you change that system uh to be more tolerant to be more inclusive if there is no mechanism of recourse to do so The if you don't like it, leave is very rigid, very dictatorial, and it's not fun, right? So that is the problem with exit politics. It doesn't have um, Mm. that type of enforced compassion that allows for tolerance and inclusion. So it can be very exclusive um, in a good way as well as a bad way.
0: Such great insights, I'm so enjoying this conversation and these thematic <laughs> areas around how you define those norms of a community and how you um, establish and enact those kind of governance mechanisms are, um, are very live across so many areas of um, blockchain communities. And I love your emphasis on um, these as both social and sort of technical
1: systems. Yep, definitely. Yep.
0: You also have some contributions in a fantastic book called Blockchain to What End? Um, it would be great if you could share, um, share some of these, I guess including uh, some sort of further critiques of blockchain technologies. We kind of continue to teeter this balance between um, what can be learned and, and what's sort
1: of still very much a work in progress definitely it's it's a great book chapter that one um blockchain to what end and I would have to say that it was written in collaboration with Luke Heamsbergen and and Robbie Fordyce and so they are the brains trust with a lot of the media critique and I really sort of brought into that discussion the um, the social insight which you know I've given you a bit of a um a word cluster (laughs) around um so I guess The sort of things that uh, we picked up in that work that I would like to really talk about is the idea that these radical decentralised systems are resisting um, sort of forms of centralised control. And working with Luke and Robbie, you know, they provided this beautiful framework of how media that actually comes as a radical resistant force gets absorbed into these centralised structures such as banks. so, you know, it's it's a bit idealistic to think that we can always stand at the fringes and push against large-scale social forces and saying, ha, 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 you're wrong, we found a ray around you, when in order to get acceptance, they have to in some way relate back to those structures. So that's sort of like the first point of it, is that blockchain is not a solution to um, the structural inequalities that we have within centralised processes across governance and uh, business. So it's not going to break that stranglehold where the individual person tends to become subject to, you know, forces of debt, forces of um, unemployment, forces of poverty, um, just by introducing a new technology that can kind of do things differently. So it's not going to be that solution, but it can be a part of that solution. And it can be a critical lens for us to see what kind of problems we are actually facing. So, you know, it's really got that capacity to act as a critical lens. But it doesn't, for example, solve these issues of visibility and tracking. So, you know, for me, the uh, one of the points that really came out of that article was around this high idea that to make to track everything allows us to see everything and in that to uh, deal with injustices, to find social, to find peer-to-peer solutions or you know ledger based solutions to actually make the invisible visible. So that of course is, has a great um, asset to it as, as long as we've got the maturity as a society to then start to engage with that, that problem and that concern. So making things visible is not a solution in itself, it's what we actually do when we see the kinds of issues that we are revealing through these tracking technologies. So you can either see that as an optics of control or an optics of hope that these types of um, technologies bring forward to us. But in doing so, I have this kind of personal aversion <laughs> to the to the tracking and tracing of every object and every person under the sun. I think that there needs to be spaces where things are liminal, things are unseen, uh, that that we can actually move through uh, spaces of uncertainty and that they actually allow for forms of change and social transformation. So I'm not, for example, a fan of the use of blockchain to to document all people and all transactions and all objects and give them a place in the world. Um, So those are the sorts of, I guess, critiques that uh, I would bring in and, you know, how these kinds of technologies then position people as having to be the meat space that resolves uh, forms of data inequalities you know, rather than the te- that the technology itself creates through oversights, absences and assumptions or expectations as to what people will do for it. You know, at what point are we being uh, subject to the technology versus being able to move into a transformational uh, space of positive social change? You know, those are the questions that um, I were, was really bringing to, to that discussion with, with Luke and, and Robbie.
0: Yeah, and perhaps that's where some of those illusions enter around um, the kind of benefit of kind of coded systems. That dichotomy yes. that you've highlighted here is also really interesting around, um, I guess, you you say in one of your pieces, not all darkness is bad. It can also mean privacy. And you mentioned of liminal spaces, which I'd love for you to uh, further articulate. But then these technologies actually are transparent, as you say, they record transactions on a public ledger.
1: i 've got so many different ways to respond to that point <laughs> uh, so i 'm just uh, trying to think of of um, where to really start so the as you can see for me, there's this tension between uh, making transparent social practices so that we can see and deal with uh, what they create amongst us whether that is good or bad. So definitely, you know, there's some, for me, some kind of, uh, I do ascribe to some level of the importance of transparency, for example, in the political process, in decision-making processes, in ledger-based processes. So I really do think that there is a value for that. Uh, As I've said, you know, there, there there needs to be the flip side of maturity in social conversation and um, dialogue to be able to deal with the challenges that that arise when we become transparent to each other rather than conforming to social norms and sweeping into private spaces, these more uh, radical or hidden practices that we all desire but can't necessarily reveal. So there's, for me, that kind of that space of liminality or uncertainty is a fundamental engine for social change. And I do think that we need to respect and protect these kinds of spaces. So for example, these technologies, blockchain and the communities, the surrounding communities who developed them and visioned different kinds of use cases for them that would help with the social good. They came from a space of um, stigma. Right, so the the all of the early uptake of these technologies was around illegal markets, uh, um, gambling. You know the sort of the perceived vices um, of of people's behaviours that, as a mainstream society, we would think are at the margins, but of course our margins are deeply embedded in each and every one of us. And so just being able to, first of all, face the the darkness within ourselves is kind of like another step about accepting uncertainty and experimentation uh, across society as an engine for change. So I see that people and technology, darkness, liminality and uncertainty are crucial, but we spend so much of our time denying Uh, pretending and separating ourselves from those processes because we're either afraid of them, afraid of ourselves and afraid of the types of control or radical disruption that they could cause. And
0: so on that point around kind of social change, um, you do a fair bit of work in an area that I am very fond of around kind of future making And in one of your pieces, uh, Digging into Crypto Communities Future-Making from Dark to Doge, you state that the future is formed beneath the surface of computational light. So my question is, what
1: kinds of futures do you think these technologies create? It's a wonderful question, and that's a question that I would ask the communities using them. (laughs) Right. So so um, it's more of a dot, dot, dot to be confirmed kind of observation. But really, uh, I think we're all desiring some form of personal freedom, freedom and agency, some form of uh, living well and well-being in this life, some form of functionality in our relation to how we consume, how we relate to um, the, the planet that we're in. And understanding that actually our our principles and values have destabilised and are essentially poisoning and killing uh, the environment within within which we inhabit, as well as being toxic across our social relationships with each other. So we've kind of hit that point where it is now 100% evident under whatever guise you want to look at it, that things are not going well for us. And our relationship with each other and with with the world that we live in and our practices are actually toxic. So for me, a lot of the questions towards social good, whether that's at the very basic level of how do we get X to Y without, you know, creating waste, um, really are a part of this question that these technologies uh, the types of encryption technologies that we're talking about and blockchain are also a part of that very important conversation so i just think that you know um, these technologies are encoded with the questions of our future and how we could or should or might actually re-engage with these larger problems that we know now are of our own creating so, of course, the future is of our own creating as well. And so what are we going to do with it? And that's what I really think they, they bring for us as a potential of a new way of talking about it.
0: I like that you highlighted again the benefits of um, digital ethnography and ethnography methods there to uh, surface those answers. And um, you're spot on in what you've said as, as we're seeing Um, As you were responding, I was thinking about that we're actually seeing those social issues emerge from the environmental concerns around Bitcoin and and the energy consumption of cryptocurrency mining um, to the other contributor or alleged contributor to the big market crash that just happened, which is, um, you know, China's uh, most recent ban on the market so again it's that external intervention and that interplay really between um, kind of state and and crypto uh, markets taken in the, the broadest sense of cryptocurrency I guess. Um, yeah
1: it's very revealing and you know mm-hmm. they're always a critical lens on our here and now as well as our, our future vision so and and how they articulate and provoke the different forces at play in our world is, is also very revealing. It's, like, it's a critical discourse as much as it is a technology and a social practice. So I think that it's important that we do have these conversations. And uh, yes, definitely uh, the type of the way that the technologies, particularly blockchain and the minting process and the energy consumption, I mean, that is a microcosm of the larger question around energy consumption and our relationship with technology, and it's very provocative and it does bring forward a conversation that we do need to have. So for me, it's just important that we're having it and that this is one of the avenues through which we can have it.
0: Yeah, it's a really, really good observation, so I would love to know uh, what else are you currently working on and where can people um, find and follow this uh, brilliant, insightful work?
1: Thank you. Uh, so at the moment, uh, there's a couple of different projects that I'm working on, but one of the uh, exciting ones is uh, in the field of digital pleasures. And so I'm working with, again, with Monica Barrett around digital drugs, uh, which are essentially binaural beats and um, also with Naomi Smith, and she's focusing on ASMR, and Jenny Davis, and she's also helping us with the ways of theorising the types of technologies that we're talking about. So we're really looking at how we recenter the body into um, the experience of pleasure and, and its relationship with technology through resonant media. So that's a project where um, Monica has facilitated a set of questions in the Global Drug Survey, about whether people are actually using ASMR, which we know they are, or binaural beats for um, state change, which we don't know about. And we have some early indications from that survey that this is actually a thing. And um, now we'll be starting to look into new directions around that research. So that's definitely a watch this space. And there'll be a lot of publications coming out around that. And it's really just um, another transformation of, of how I'm looking at emerging technologies and the ways that um, they make possible different forms of social behaviour and, and consumption and, and engagement. So that's one area. Uh, just so for and just,
0: myself and our audience's sake, can you explain what ASMR is very briefly?
1: Oh, I need
0: to look the at acronym. the
1: acronym. <laughs> <laughs> it's like... So it's um, uh, So essentially it's it's uh, that tingling sensation that you get. So most people know it when someone scratches their nails down a blackboard, right? And so your spine just goes, Ugh! right? So there's um, within sort of visual media, like across YouTube, for example, there's a lot of ASMR producers who are attempting to give um, embodied experiences of care and connection through the use of, say, immersing your hand in... Um, a jar that's got a whole bunch of beads in it, and that sound could make you have this autumn like this this response. So asmr is is a field of intimate tactility that is essentially created through um, media and sound. And so there's a whole realm of producers around that, and uh, particularly during the pandemic, it's really been one of the ways that people can experience pleasure and care. Um, at a distance. Thank you for explaining that. Uh, please uh, <laughs> continue with the other
0: projects or any other places <laughs> to find you.
1: You'll start Googling. So uh, at um, uh, two years ago we presented on this area um, at uh, the Association of Internet Researchers Conference and particularly in my work with Monica, which is kind of still following that, that um, drug trail, Uh, we started to see uh, these sort of binaural beats apps uh, producing sound uh, that would simulate or stimulate within you the experience of ecstasy or whatever. And we were just thinking, well, is that just like marketing? So there's a whole bunch of work which is is really about um, that this doesn't really have an effect. But we're starting to see now within the literature that people are using binaural beats alongside drug consumption and also within pornography for example so that kind of digitally mediated pleasure experience or stimulation is starting to actually pervade social practice so it's it's an emerging um, trend and it just helps us again to talk about forms of pleasure and technology uh, which is just another offset of this larger question around how people use technology to get what they want and uh, where the body is in it. (laughs) So I think um, at the moment uh, a lot of my work is in in that area and um, I'm also interested in, again, keeping this question of the dark social going. So I'm involved in a special issue that has just come out um, with Media and Communication Journal and also we'll have another special issue coming out later through Continuum with another suite of, of papers that are really expanding on that topic. And for me, again, this question about what is our vision of the future and and how are technologies that we're developing and creating becoming a part of that vision and what do we see for ourselves? So that's, that's another area that's, a, I guess, a long, slow burner for me, which is about this question of, of social transformation and the different uh, types of communities that are out there and their vision for the future. So and how they think technology plays a role in that. Um, so I'm kind of, you know, working in this very frontier space um, of people and technology. Yeah, it's
0: fascinating. And I think uh, not only has this been an interesting discussion for other researchers in the space around um, uh, sort of content or, or findings and methods, but it's also a really nice reflexivity for uh, those working in, in different positions in um, perhaps the broader kind of blockchain or technology space as well around how they frame and think about and approach their work. So in respect for your time, I'll say thank you so much, Alexia Maddox, for joining us. And uh, thank you to our listeners for this episode of Minton Burn. You can check out the show notes and get in touch for more information at rmitblockchain.io.